Hey nerds, my name is Will Wheaton and you are hearing me talk. It is Saturday the 13th of June. According to the whiteboard, I've been isolating myself for 103 days. Can you believe that? And this is, I think, the 21st or 22nd uh, audio thingy I have released since I started doing this. As we have reached a number of numerical significance, uh, I hope that I can welcome some new listeners to the podcast. Uh, if this is your first time, what I'm doing is going to the Internet Archive and Project Gutenberg. I am finding classic works um, of literature, and I am finding pulp science fiction and fantasy stories, and I am narrating them, and I am really releasing them for free because it keeps me in practice as an audiobook narrator, which is one of my primary uh, ways of earning a living. It also uh, keeps me um, creative and productive at a time when it is uh, very easy for someone in my line of work to just sort of become fallow and not really do much of anything. And also, I feel like, um, you know, I started this during the pandemic. I started doing this before we uh, uh, began our most current reckoning with America's uh, profoundly racist uh, existence. And uh, I started doing this during the uh, the lockdown and the stay-at-home orders because I thought, here is a way that I can do something that I don't suck at that can be entertaining and distracting for people. Because the world has changed in the last couple of weeks, it feels sometimes a bit silly for me to be doing this. Uh, but, you know, this is opt-in. And if you are still listening now, presumably you enjoy this sort of thing. And I'm really happy that you are here. Um I do these readings cold. I do not. That means that I don't read the story before I narrate it. And it means that if I make a mistake, I just back up and uh, repeat what I've been doing. Uh, over the, the months that I've been doing this, we've had plenty of visits from my dogs um, and uh, an occasional visit from a delivery person. Uh, but today, actually, it was very quiet as I read this. And I don't think I made any gigantic mistakes. There is a character in this book whose name is Framer, and uh, I uh, transposed the R and the A, and I call him Farmer throughout the entire thing. If any of you are hardcore Robert Silverberg fans, uh, I apologize for getting that name wrong. Speaking of Robert Silverberg... Um he is the uh, author of today's short story, and here's just a little bit about him. He was born on January 15th in 1935. He's an American author and editor, best known for his science fiction work. He is a multiple winner of Hugo and Nebula Awards, a member of the Science Fiction and Fantasy Hall of Fame, and a grand master of science fiction. He is a big freaking deal. He is a towering legend of science fiction, and I'm thrilled that I found this story of his in an, in an issue of Super Science Fiction. Uh, this is volume two, number six. It was released in October of 1958. And the story is called The Fight with the Gorgon. Um, it is a pretty straightforward, pretty simple story. It is what we would call like, you know, 60 feet wide and an inch deep. 
Um, but I still enjoyed it. I, I enjoyed uh, the action of it, and uh, I enjoyed uh, some of the unexpected uh, reveals that came along in this thing. But I'll be honest with you, this is not one of my favorite things that I've ever read. Um, so with that incredibly ringing endorsement, uh, I hope that you will enjoy it. Um, thanks for listening. You can subscribe to this podcast at RadioFreeBurrito.com. Um, and uh, if you have a classic science fiction story that you love that is in the public domain, feel free to leave a link to it in the comments at RadioFreeBurrito.com for this. And uh, I will be open to uh, looking at some of your suggestions and perhaps using one of them for a story in the future. Thanks for listening and enjoy the story. The Fight with the Gorgon by Robert Silverberg. Our trouble started the moment the stiffened corpse of Flaherty was found, standing frozen in a field half a kilometer from the ship. Nobody in the crew had cared very much for the big Irishman, but still, finding his body completely unharmed, stocked still, and standing alone, was quite a jolt. There was no apparent sign of death. In fact, at first we thought he was asleep on his feet. Horses sleep that way, why not Flaherty? But he wasn't asleep. He was dead, dead as could be. And when there are only eight human beings on an unexplored planet, and one of those eight happens to die suddenly of unknown causes, the framework of your existence tends to sag a bit. We were scared. We, being the first Earth exploratory party, Type A7, to the planet Bellatrix IV in Orion. Eight men, altogether, charged with the job of bringing back a full report on the whole planet. Eight, of whom one, ox-like Flaherty, was stiff as a board before us. Tavi Ramirez, our geologist, asked, What did it to him, Joel? How the blazes do I know? I snapped. I regretted losing my temper right away. Sorry, Tavi, but I know as much as you do about the whole thing. Flaherty's dead, and there's something out there that killed him. But there's nothing out there, protested the biologist, Cal Framer. For three days we've hunted up and down and haven't found a sign of animal life. Not a sign. Jonathan Morrow, botanist, unwound his six feet eight and stretched. Maybe an intelligent plant did him in, eh, Captain? I shook my head. Doubt it, John. No sign of violence, no vegetation in the vicinity. We found him standing in the middle of a field on his two big feet, frozen dead. Doesn't figure. Over in the corner of the cabin, Steger, medical officer, was puttering around the corpse. Steger was an older man than most of us, one who had literally rotted in the service. He had contracted frogpox on Fomal Hot 2, and now he wore two chrome-jacketed titanium legs. I looked over at him and said, You have any report to make yet, Doc? Steger turned watery eyes toward me. There's no sign of any physical harm, Joel, but his muscles are all tensed, as if... As if... Well, I can't put it into words. He seems to have been frozen in his tracks by some strange force. I can't explain it. Phil Janis, our chronicler, looked up from the chess game he'd been playing with pilot Kurt Holden and laughed. Maybe he had an overjuice. Maybe he had an overdose of his own joy juice and it hardened all his arteries. That was a reference to the crude still Flaherty had rigged the day we landed on Bellatrix 4. His duties as navigator had kept the big fellow pretty busy all trip, but first day down planet, he had managed to get right at the business of building the still. He hadn't said a word about it to anyone, but when he showed up at mess that night, 
He was pretty high, and we knew what he'd done. He, we never found his still, though we searched all over. The second day, Phil Janis had come across a liter flask of whiskey, homebrewed, and his sampling had cost him a black eye when Flaherty caught him. Let's be serious a minute, Framer said. One of our group is dead, and we don't know what killed him. There's something out there that Flaherty crossed. I move we organized a searching party to find out what. Seconded, murmured Morrow. I looked at the corpse for a moment, then at the six men around me. Framer was my solid man, I knew, the leader of the group. Morrow was strong too, but usually too bored to bother with the welfare of the group. Young Holden, the pilot, was a follower. He didn't have any thoughts of his own, or at least he never expressed any. Tavi Ramirez, I knew, quiet, smiling, unassuming, not very strong a person. Doc Steger was small frightened, not at all the sort of man you'd expect would go gallivanting around space as part of an exploratory crew. Janice was like Morrow in many ways. He just didn't care. And Flaherty, thank the Lord, was dead. The big ox had threatened nasty incidents many times. He'd been a constant source of dissension on the ship. As for me, Joel Kafton, Lieutenant, Spatial, I was scared. Visible monsters on a planet are bad enough. Invisible ones are hell. I looked out the port and saw the vast, empty, tree-studded plain that was our chunk of Bellatrix IV and looked back at the men. All in favor of a searching party, say aye. Aye it was, and we divided up. There were seven of us now, and that made things awkward. Steger, as our doctor, was indispensable, and he was no use outdoors anyway. Theoretically, Holden was dispensable. In a pinch, I could probably have piloted the ship myself, but I would have hated to try, and so I confined him to quarters, too. That left just five men for the search. The logical way to do it would have been to split into two groups, one of three men and one of two. But I suppose I wasn't thinking too clearly just then. I wanted to cover the maximum possible ground. I announced that there would be three groups. I didn't figure that one poor chap would have to go out alone. I teamed up with Ramirez and Framer with Morrow. That left Janice as a searching party of one. Janice didn't mind. Phil rarely minded anything. Looks like I'm a lone wolf, he said. Okay, gentlemen, if you hear a loud silence from my neck of the woods, run like hell. We opened the airlock, not really necessary since Bellatrix Four conveniently had an Earth-type atmosphere, and we left. Tavi and I struck out for the sight of Flaherty's finish. We didn't say much. We were both kind of numb. When your lifespan is 150 years or so and you've got more than 100 of them left, you're not too anxious to die young, even as a hero on an alien planet. Framer and Morrow wandered up the big ridge behind the spaceship. Janice headed for the clump of twisted, red-leaved trees about 200 meters away. Tavi and I moved slowly, looking around in every direction. As usual, there was no sign of any animal life. Bellatrix IV had an abundance of plants, not chlorophyll-based, but with some sort of iron compound base, a temperate climate and flowing streams of real H2O water, but no visible animals. Of course, we hadn't covered very much territory yet, no more than two or three square kilometers. No one dared to make a sound. Then, suddenly, in about two seconds flat, we had our first encounter with Bellatrician life. 
We saw poor Janus come racing out of the woods, and lumbering behind him out of nowhere came a bizarre thing about ten feet high, with little flapping non-functional wings, gleaming golden scales, and a head full of writhing pencil-like tentacles. We stood transfixed for a moment. I snapped out of my shock, drew my rifle, and put a shot into the scales without causing any apparent disturbance to the beast. And then Janice turned and stared right up at the beast for a fraction of a second as he ran. It was a mistake. The beast stared back at him, and the frantic pursuit came to an end. They glared at each other for just a moment. Then the monster seemed to lose interest in the chase. It wheeled and ran off in the opposite direction. Within moments, it had disappeared over the hill. But Janus remained where he was, frozen dead. We planted our second corpse and gathered morosely in the cabin of our ship, a scared and dismal bunch. We missed Flaherty just a bit, but not very much. Janus, though, genial, clever, enormously capable. It was hard to believe he was dead, killed by a Gorgon. Gorgon it was. There was no doubt that the Beast of the Forest was a Gorgon, straight out of the old mythology. Doc Steger had given us the first inkling when he pointed out that the deaths of both Flaherty and Janice had been caused by a sudden neural blast. Farmer looked up. But we didn't see any physical contact between Phil and the monster. No, Ramirez said. Janice just looked at the thing and then he froze stiff. The explanation must have hit Morrow and myself at just about the same instant. Gorgon, I said. Gorgon. He echoed a split second later. He stood up and peered out at the wide plain with its deadly clump of trees off to the side. A gorgon. There was a moment of silence. Then Holden said, If you'll pardon me, sir, what exactly is a gorgon? I don't remember hearing about them at the academy. Farmer muttered something under his breath. I knew he had a vivid scorn for modern methods of specialized education. It was Morrow who spoke. A Gorgon, Kurt, is a mythical beast. It killed by a glance. If you looked at its eyes, you were turned to stone. And the thing outside is almost a living version of a Gorgon, complete to the tentacles on its head. The original Gorgon was supposed to have living snakes instead of hair. Holden said nothing, but his eyes widened. Ramirez scratched his neck uneasily. Gorgon, is it? Joel, how do we deal with that? The same way Perseus did, I said. And so Operation Medusa got underway. It needed some preliminary discussion. For one thing, Holden, who, as our most experienced technician, was vital to the plan, had not the slightest knowledge of the Perseus myth, and so we had to fill him in on it. Moro patiently did most of the explaining. A Greek hero named Perseus boasted he could kill Medusa, the Gorgon, Moro said, smothering a yawn. With the help of the gods, he got a pair of magic sandals, which enabled him to fly, and a cap of invisibility. Then he polished his shield to mirror brightness and swooped down on the Gorgon, watching her in his mirror shield, and without ever looking her in the face, he cut off her head. I see, Holden said. We have to hunt down this Gorgon, too, and we can't look at it either, or he nodded meaningfully at the two brown mounds of earth outside the ship. Right, Farmer said, but we don't have a mirror, and we can't build one. What now? We racked our brains. Morrow wondered if we could somehow polish the ship to the proper brightness, but the scheme was impractical. Try radar? Ramirez offered finally. That's it, I whooped. Hunt down the Gorgon with radar and blast it without ever looking at the damn thing. That was our plan. Medusa's number was up. 
but I suspected she wouldn't go down without a fight. Holden had the radar screen dismantled and set up for Gorgon hunting in no time at all. The boy's horizons were limited, maybe, but in the fields for which he had been educated, he was Tomps. We set out on our Gorgon hunt. It was a warm, summery day. Wherever we looked, redness greeted our eyes. The trees had red leaves, and the grass was a carpet of red. Bellatrix 4 was one huge plain, it seemed, covered with a bloody carpet. Steger remained behind on ship, peering intently into the radar screen. The other five of us fanned out slowly. We were well-armed. That didn't keep us from feeling terrified. I had visions of myself being borne back to the ship, frozen to share that impromptu graveyard with Janice and Flaherty. Steger had more to worry about than any of us. Hunched over the radar scope, his job was to relay instructions to us. We knew the Gorgon was somewhere in the copse because Farmer had seen the great beast go thundering into the clump of trees the day before, and no one had seen it come out. But only a fool would go in there after a creature that could kill with a glance. Slowly, painfully, the five of us formed a wide circle around the copse, standing no closer than a hundred meters from the edge. Not one of us dared to look up, of course. Our eyes were fixed on the blood-red grass, and Steger directed us to our positions, step by painful step. It took half an hour to form the circle, as Doc would tell the first one, and then another of us to move a couple of steps to right or left. Finally, the circle was complete. Five Perseuses, frightened green. Then came the toughest part, as we waited for the attack. When the call came over the phones from Steger, I was going to hurl a Johnson flare into the cops, and if all went right, the Gorgon would come lumbering out. Without looking, we would fire. It was a pretty harebrained scheme. So many things could have gone wrong that it's a wonder we ever went ahead with it. Doc gave the signal, and I drew back my arm and flung the flare, automatically looking up as I did. For one horror-stricken second, I feared the Gorgon might approach just as I looked up. It didn't. Then... All hell broke loose in the cops. A Johnson flare goes off like a lithium bomb. At least it's pretty damned bright. That cops lit up a bright yellow, and I caught the odd contrast between the red of the leaves and the yellow of the light. And I saw some huge thrashing around in the heart of the cops before I jerked my head down. I forced myself to stare at the ground. An awful ten seconds passed, seeming like days. I grew progressively more numb with fear until I passed the point of fright and became almost fatalistically calm. Nothing happened, though the flare continued to kick up a powerful light. I heard rustling noises in the cops. And then all at once I heard Steger's tinny yell in my phones, Joel! In that same instant, I drew with my right hand and flung my left hand behind my neck, forcing my head down. I aimed the blaster up at a 45-degree angle and began sizzling away for all I was worth. I could hear Moro doing the same over to my left. There was the sound of thunder, as of a great beast pounding the ground near me. I could hear Steger screaming something in my phones, but I was unable to stop yelling myself, and I didn't dare look up. For all I knew, the Gorgon was standing right over me and bending to bite me in two but I had passed the point of any coherent reasoning. I was still screaming and squeezing the trigger of the burned-out blaster five minutes later when Moro and Farmer came back over to me and led me back to the ship. We had killed it then, and I was Perseus. We thought we'd never get you up, Moro said. 
Steger said, I saw that Gorgon come out and I yelled to you. You started waving a blaster around and Moro came over too, but by the time he reached you, you had blasted the Medusa in the neck and pretty much cut that head right off. Ramirez took up the story. You were still blasting away without looking, even though the Gorgon had fallen on its face. Holden came up and cut its head off, but it's still thrashing its wings out there. I looked up. The accumulated tension had built up to such a pitch while I was waiting for the thing to come out of its lair that I felt I had been through a ringer and squeezed flat. I looked around at the men ringing the couch on which I lay. I saw Moro standing at my feet and old Steger looking even older after his remote control chess game with the Gorgon. And there was Holden and Ramirez. Four. And I made five. Two dead made seven. It took me another second to realize we were not all together. Where's Farmer? Out there, Ramirez said. He's examining the Gorgon. But you said the wings were still thrashing, I yelled, leaping up. That means... They realized what it meant, too, and we raced through the airlock door together. We were too late, of course. We found the biologist bent over the decapitated Gorgon, examining the head with interest. He was frozen stiff. Averting our eyes, we carried Cal back to the ship and buried him next to Flaherty and Janus. More than any of us, Cal had been a scientist, and he hadn't been able to resist trying to solve the puzzle of the Gorgon. Whether he had or not, we would never know. The Gorgon's neural network had been of a low order, low enough to remain functioning for a while after the organism's death. There had been enough of a charge left in those deadly eyes to give Farmer a freezing blast. I directed operations from the door of the ship. Ramirez and Moro crept up blindfolded and slipped the Gorgon's head into a thick plastic canvas bag and zipped up the top. We sealed it and stuck a danger do not open sign on it. Medusa had cost us three men, but we had beaten her. We loaded her headless corpse into the deep freeze for Earth scientists to puzzle over. We were glad to see it out of sight. No more monsters, we thought. The expedition will be a breeze from here on out. Until the next day, when Ramirez found that sphinx crouching near the ship. The End <laughs>